Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. I'm excited to announce that this is the 100th episode of the show, which coincides neatly with the 100th anniversary of the Brookings Institution. It's been three years of over 100 guests talking about scores of public policy topics. I hope you've enjoyed listening and learning as much as I've enjoyed hosting the show. To help me celebrate, I'd love it if you could visit iTunes and submit a rating and a review, and also share episodes that you have found particularly edifying. And if you have any feedback from me or the show, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. All right, on to episode the 100th. We've heard a lot of talk on the presidential campaign trail about global trade, about American jobs moving out of the country to Mexico or overseas. The Trans-Pacific Partnership Free Trade Deal has been the subject of considerable scrutiny as both major party candidates appear to oppose it, while the Obama administration continues to argue for its ratification. To help us understand the issue of trade, I'm joined in the studio today by Maria Solis. She is a senior fellow in the Center for East Asia Policy Studies and is the Philip Knight Chair in Japan Studies. Her expertise includes Japanese politics and foreign policy, as well as U.S.-Japan relations. Stay tuned after the interview for another installment of Wessel's Economic Update, in which David Wessel shares his top three items for the next president's economic policy to-do list. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're talking uh, about trade and specifically the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's in the political conversation a lot these days. Let's start with a little Trade 101. Um, what is the Trans-Pacific Partnership in terms of number of countries, percentage of world trade? You know, What's its scope? Well, it is very big. Uh, we refer to it as a mega trade agreement. It comprises 12 different nations in Asia Pacific that together represent something close to 40%, 40% of world GDP. There are several distinctive characteristics of a Trans-Pacific Partnership that really make it stand out. One is that we're talking about a cross-regional effort. We're not talking about a self-contained region, but rather we're bringing together countries from North America, Latin America, and Asia. And that's very important to keep in mind. Second, it is the level of ambition in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, It goes really deep in terms of trying to eliminate tariffs. The tariff elimination ratio uh, is in the range of 99%. That's very, very uh, high. And also what makes it perhaps stand out and also controversial is the scope of the rules. The idea that you're codifying rules on new areas like the digital economy. You're also providing deeper disciplines in intellectual property. You're introducing new uh, rules and state-owned enterprises, and the list goes on and on. And let's, uh, let's be sure that it, to note that it does not include China. No, no, China is not in it. South Korea, United States, and as you said, other Asian and and Latin American countries. Um, Generally speaking with trade, why do countries uh, seek to have trade deals with other countries? I think most fundamentally it is a search for economic competitiveness. It is the uh, notion that if you really want to maximize the use of your productive resources, you should specialize in the production of what you're most competitive at and exchange with your neighbors. That will maximize consumer welfare, that will introduce efficiency, productivity. Free trade also brings opportunity of bringing uh, new technology, learning from others. So it's also a major force for uh, innovation. So all these things, I think, show a very, very important trend that I would like to highlight, and that is that 
There's a very established track record. Open economies perform better than closed ones. So when we think about how we want to make our economies most innovative, most productive, most competitive, we think about not being constrained just by the internal market, but reaching out. Now, when uh, I was uh, in school and college, um, thinking about global politics and global trade, I would always hear about the World Trade Organization or the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade (GATT). Um, can you quickly explain um, what those mean and where we are in relationship to GATT and WTO, and how t something like TPP uh, fits into that? Certainly. So the World Trade Organization, or WTO, uh, it is the multilateral trading regime. It is the organization that succeeded GATT, which was established at the end of World War II, and which really oversaw a major sustained effort at tariff elimination. With the World Trade Organization, you actually had a major expansion in the reach of the multilateral trading regime. It now dealt with issues like agriculture and services, but also intellectual property, things that had not been part of the GATT, which was much more circumscribed to tariffs. Now, uh, it is a vast organization. It has 150-plus economists in there. It operates with a norm of consensus. And it has had a very hard time concluding the Doha round. So when we think about the WTO, Fred, we're thinking about two essential uh, functions. When we think about the WTO, we're thinking about the uh, negotiation function, and that is multilateral rounds of uh, negotiation where you bring down tariff barriers, you codify rules. But also, very important, we're thinking about the dispute settlement mechanism that the WTO has established. And there is a very uneven performance here. The negotiation front, unfortunately, is not moving forward. There has been a stagnation of the Doha round for over a decade, but the WTO actually does perform a major service in terms of the dispute settlement area. How does the TPP fit into this? Well, quite frankly, it is that stagnation of the negotiation front of the WTO that explains why governments are looking elsewhere. They're now deciding to try to negotiate in smaller numbers on these cutting-edge rules with a higher ambition in terms of eliminating uh, barriers, dealing with what we call non-tariff measures. Those are measures behind the border that discriminate against foreign producers and companies. So that is, I think, the significance of the TPP and other mega-trade agreements. Do we go elsewhere? We focus our energies elsewhere because the WTO is not moving forward. Well, uh one thing that we've heard on the campaign trail is, uh, from one of the candidates at least, is that we should just have a whole bunch of bilateral trade deals. The United States should have a deal with Mexico, with Canada, with Japan, with Korea, with Australia, with, with Germany. Um, why are these mega trade deals sought after by nations as opposed to just having one-on-one -on -one bilateral deals with a whole bunch of nations? There are very good reasons to focus on the mega trade agreements. First of all, I should note that we've had bilaterals for the longest time. There are something like 400 or more trade agreements that have been notified to the World Trade Organization. Most of them are bilateral trade agreements. Many of them are rather inconsequential because they cover very small markets, because they set aside most uh, difficult, sensitive issues. So they don't make much of an impact. The promise of a mega trade agreement is that you are combining a significant market share.
and that you are uh, producing new, new roles that could disseminate even beyond the existing membership. So these are what I refer to as architectural trade agreements, something that you can never hope for in just a bilateral framework. Negotiating one-on-one -on -one has huge transaction costs. You're going to spend a lot of time trying to open one market at a time. You're going to come up with rules that apply just between the two of you. And that's not, I would argue, the most efficient use of resources is not the way forward when you think about the future of the multilateral trading regime mm -hmm. either. Well, and I learned also that the United States and Japan uh, don't even have a bilateral trade agreement. Why wouldn't they? Well, I think this has to do with the difficult um, history of trade between these two countries. As you probably recall, Fred, trade used to be a very divisive issue for Japan and the United States in the 1980s and 1990s. There were many exercises of trade negotiation between Japan and the United States in that uh, period, but they were very different exercises. They were um, mostly focused on what was referred to as structural impediments to trade, and it was basically the United States asking Japan to change some of its important economic institutions because the United States argued they were non-tariff barriers. And Japan was a very reluctant participant to these negotiations. They were carried also under the threat of possible um, uh, punitive tariffs. And it was a very a, a period of acrimony that did not generate uh, major results. Then afterwards, um, Japan, one reason why there was not a bilateral uh, also is that Japan was a hardcore multilateralist. That Japan was a late convert to the wisdom of preferential trading. And once Japan decided to do what everybody else was doing in the world, every country today is negotiating preferentially, it approached the United States. But to be quite frank, Fred, the United States was not very interested because Japan lacked credibility. It was not certain at all that Japan could embark on an ambitious exercise of opening its market, especially in agriculture. And that's, I think, why the Trans-Pacific Partnership is so transformative in the U.S.-Japan relation, because you finally have these two countries agreeing on a compromise formula, formula on those divisive market access issues, but also working together where they see eye to eye on the rules area of the negotiations. So TPP is, is really important to Japan? It is uh, very important because uh, I think it provides that fundamental rare commodity I was just alluding to, credibility. Before TPP, Japan actually was being bypassed by the wave of mega trade agreements. With TPP, not only Japan became this important uh, partner of the United States and the other countries in designing cutting-edge rules on trade and investment, but was able to launch other mega trade agreements that had been in the back burner because other countries were not serious about negotiating with Japan because Japan did not have that kind of credibility. It is essential to the success of this program of economic revitalization that the Abe administration has launched, where the most important component is the structural reform agenda. And that's where TPP stands to deliver important benefits. It will not do everything for Japan. It is not a magic bullet. There are many things that are outside the scope of this trade agreement. But when you want to understand, when you want to see evidence that this government can take on important reforms, TPP becomes that all-important test. 
Um, let's switch to the um, United States view for a second here. You've, you've written that the TPP, uh, quote, is a litmus test of the U.S. ability to provide leadership at a time of great complexity in the world economic order. Um, how is this a litmus test? Well, because we are asking ourselves, how can we move forward the trade agenda? As I said before, uh, Fred, the WTO is not working well in updating the rules on trade and investment. We are also uh, seeing a period of a major power shift with the rise of emerging economies, and therefore we are in urgent need to upgrade the architecture of the trading system. We're also, in Asia, very much uh, Asian countries want to see that the United States has the staying power and that can become very uh, deeply embedded in the economic architecture of this vibrant region. So for all these reasons, when we think about what's going to be the new vehicle in uh, um, codifying these new rules on trade and investment, how the United States is going to demonstrate that it can innovate by launching this major experiment and seeing it through, and ratification is the only outcome that matters here negotiating and coming short is far more damaging than not having done it all at all. And then having that presence in the region when you have a rise in China, but being able to put on the table something, a proposal that is inclusive, that holds the promise that China could actually join in the uh, future, is a very compelling leadership. And I think that that's all at stake in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, so you, you were talking a minute ago about the benefits to Japan of uh, the TPP. What are some of the um, more specific benefits to the United States, to American workers? So beyond the geopolitical role, what are some of the benefits that you see of free trade with uh, in the TPP sense? Well, I think that in the TPP, the United States has crafted an agreement that taps on the sources of competitive advantage for the American economy. So it's going to promote traditional exports, certainly, agriculture. Japanese markets are not going to be completely free, but certainly TPP makes more inroads than ever before. But perhaps more fundamentally, it's also about the new areas of the economy. The TPP is the first to codify rules on the digital economy. And we know that the United States is the leader in this sector. Services, for example, these are all areas where we know the American economy is very strong. And the TPP, and I think it's important to note this, is not expected to create major job dislocations in the United States. Quite frankly, because the United States is already a very open economy. Second, because the United States already has uh, trade agreements with many of the TPP countries. And lastly, because the single most important new market that the TPP is going to open is Japan. And Japan is certainly does not qualify as a low-wage economy. So I think that we're seeing many opportunities that present, ourselves, uh, present themselves with the Trans-Pacific Partnership for uh, American, the American economy and the American worker. Well, so let's uh, shift a little bit further uh, into the U.S. scene with talking about current politics. Um, the Republican Party has traditionally been seen as the, the party of free trade, um, and yet now its nominee, Donald Trump, seems to be very vocal against free trade. Um, what happened? Mm, a lot has happened. I think that if you step back and try to understand the evolution of trade politics in the United States, the most astonishing fact has been the transformation in the Republican Party. 
the Republican Party consistently was the party that delivered the votes in Congress to support trade initiatives to renew trade promotion authority. And that's no longer the case. Uh, Trump is an extreme manifestation of that, if you will, but this is a trend that started earlier with the Tea Party wing when it refused to go along in supporting uh, Trade Promotion Authority, for example. So we began to see the loss of cohesion inside the Republican Party. And uh, then, obviously, Mr. Trump has taken this to an entirely new level by breaking orthodoxy with the party regarding the support for free trade. I think that um, beyond Mr. Trump himself, what we should take from this is that he is tapping on an anxiety that's very real. And I think that it's very uh, clear that there are many people out there that do not, that are not well prepared to cope with this transition to a new economy because they do not have the skills, because they're older, because they may be uh, living in areas that are depressed and it's very hard to move elsewhere. And they are reacting uh, out of fear. And it's very understandable. The problem is that they're being told that trade is to be, uh, 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 that they should blame trade and that by turning inward, they'll be better off. And I think that's, of course, the problem with the argument. We need to address the concerns of these people. We need to devise a better safety net, but we should not blame trade and give up on the benefits that we are uh, likely to uh, receive if we pursue the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And and on the other side of the aisle, um, uh, Secretary of State, or Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State as the TPP was being negotiated. Um, But now she says that it doesn't, uh, quote, meet her standards. What is she talking about? Yes. Um, Well, uh, first, number of things. Uh, Hillary Clinton has always said that she is very much in favor of international trade. So she is completely different in the way in which Mr. Trump thinks about trade, which basically would be, a, a, I I call it, a, a, a... overt protectionism, predatory protectionism in the case of Mr. Trump. Now, Hillary Clinton is in favor of trade. She has said that the TPP does not meet her standard and that uh, she has mentioned specific issues like uh, currency manipulation. So I guess this has many people wondering um, what will happen if she wins the election? Will she uh, go back to uh, TPP? Um, Obviously, I don't have a crystal ball. It's hard to know. I certainly hope that she does. I think there's a very strong case, even following her own uh, set of requirements of what would it take for her to support TPP. She has said that she would look at any trade agreement and see, ask, does it improve employment? Does it increase wages? Does it help enhance American security? I would argue that the Trans-Pacific Partnership meets all those requirements. But I also think that um, given the lessons that we're learning the hard way in this election, there is now greater readiness to accept that we need to do a much better job in providing for a more comprehensive safety net. And I think that that's something that the uh, Democratic Party could identify with. So I don't see her just moving on TPP on its own, but actually that there would be homework to be done in developing a social safety net that provides for labor mobility and that most fundamentally, Fred, provides for skill acquisition. 
If we think that globalization has been unkind to the American worker, think about the prospects of the so-called fourth industrial revolution of automation, right? We need to prepare people to uh, cope with this, to be able to transition from one job to the other. And the way you do that is by having portable skills. Giving on, on TPP will do nothing to address this very uh, 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 necessary requirement on how we prepare our workforce to deal with the force of economic change that are upon us. So I think that doing that kind of preparatory work, there's a chance that uh, uh, we could come back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So then um, uh, until we get to that point where um, we're having maybe a rational conversation like we are now about, um, about this kind of assistance, about this kind of uh, uh, safety net, what is, um, what's one of the biggest myths that you hear in the public discourse about TPP? Well, there are many, but I think I would use one phrase to uh, summarize the general sentiment and, I, and then I can address some of the specific myths. But I think the most fundamental myth is that we're better off without the Trans-Pacific Partnership and that we can just pick up our way and that there will be no lasting damage to uh, the American prestige and leadership in the world. I think we are really at a critical juncture. If the Congress fails to ratify TPP, this is a, a major first. We have never in the past failed to ratify a negotiated trade deal. I think we should not kid ourselves what that would do to American leadership and American credibility. How can we ask others to come back and sit at the table and negotiate even a bilateral if they can be, uh, um, there's no assurance that we can actually follow through. So, you know, the notion that we're better off that we can deliver more prosperity, that these workers who have lost their jobs because they don't have the skills, because the economy has transitioned to a different structure, can be made whole by giving up on trade is, I think, one of the biggest myths on the uh, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership and one that needs to be addressed head on. Um, I mean, so the, the jobs that have left, say the carrier air conditioning jobs that we hear about in the campaign trail that have gone to Mexico, those aren't necessarily, those jobs themselves aren't going to come back to the U.S. necessarily. I don't think so. And I think that, you know, that, that story in particular, we should also realize that what we have in North America is a very integrated economy. You know, Fred, I think that in our gut, we're all mercantilists, and we like to think of trade as a zero-sum game, and Mexico's gain is America's loss. And trade is certainly not like that. That's why it's so hard to get to the essence of trade, and it's very difficult to capture it in a soundbite. It's very difficult to make this a winning election theme. Why I say this? Because when you look at the reality of the North American economy, I actually see a very positive form of economic integration. It's not just that our jobs are being shipped off to Mexico. End of story. Actually, some of these American companies are able to keep the other uh, um, manufacturing facilities in the rest of the United States by doing this. But more importantly, what we have created is an integrated North American economic platform, so much so that every time that Mexico and Canada export, they carry a significant amount of American inputs. So they're also creating jobs and exports based here in the United States. That is a win-win proposition. And that's something that's very difficult sometimes to realize when we get in the heated uh, debates that we're seeing in this election. 
So President Obama has less than six months remaining in his term of office, half of which will be dominated by the presidential election in, in which the, the two major candidates have voiced their opposition to TPP. But yet President Obama still wants to get the Senate to ratify it. Do you think he, uh, he has any prospects of making that happen or, or will he have to turn it over to uh, his successor? It's going to be hard. It's not impossible. Um, there are some specific issues in the uh, um, among the Republican congressional leadership that they were not happy with when the final TPP deal uh, was concluded. And there have been negotiations and uh, uh, the search for so-called fixes. Uh, one of them already has been fixed, and that has to do with the uh, financial services and the data localization, the exclusion from the ban on data localization. They found a way out. And a lot of discussion now is taking place on the question of biologics. So um, there are specific issues that will be necessary to uh, bring these uh, Republican leaders who do care deeply about uh, trade and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and I imagine that uh, there's a lot of ongoing discussion on what to do in order to gather the votes. But I think it's very hard, Fred, when you think about how disruptive this election has been, when you're thinking about the Republican Party almost losing its identity, that they would have that calm to be able to think through and be able to move forward on the TPP very promptly. So that's why I'm not holding my breath about uh, uh, the lame duck session. But I also think that, um, you know, the United States does not really have a plan B. The United States can ill afford for the wealth of its economy, for the um, credibility of its leadership, for the uh, 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 upgrading of the uh, trading regime. We all need this. And I think that you know it's not going to disappear just because it didn't happen during the lame duck. But if I may add something, Fred, I also think that we need to think um, anew as to how we make the case for trade. I think that the arguments are all correct, but they don't resonate. We need something else. Why I say this? Because I find that, you know, people that want to see the Trans-Pacific Partnership become a reality always talk about the gains from trade, you know, percentage over GDP and so forth. And they always mention that the gains clearly surpass the losses and that, you know, for the people who are not doing well, we have trade adjustment assistance. These are all true things, but they're not going to make a difference. I think we should not just focus on the gains. We have to focus on the fears. And unless we have that conversation, Unless we realize that in a country that has seen income inequality rise the way it has, that's just on the recovery from the Great Recession where there were major cuts in employment, you know, telling them that trade is not to blame is not going to make it. You have to fix the root problem for people to be willing to look outside, to be outward looking. They're not going to seize the opportunity when they feel stuck. And they're stuck. It's very true. You know, when you compare how it was 60 years ago, you know, what kind of employment you could have with just a high school degree, that doesn't carry you in this economy. But if we want people to pay attention to our arguments about trade, we need to give them the tools to be able to navigate this new economy. And that's why addressing the question of income inequality, addressing the problem of transitional employment, making sure that the United States is not known just for a country of labor flexibility, but labor mobility, 
is all essential. And this requires domestic policies. So I'm hoping that in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it is a chance not only to think about internationally, the geopolitics, the new trade architecture, but how we address these long neglected areas of you know, how we make sure we don't leave others behind. That, I think, would be a conversation that the Trans-Pacific Partnership could be productive in generating if we make sure that we don't let emotion get ahead of thinking through what should be the new approach. Well, uh, I think we'll leave it there then. This has been a very informative conversation, Maria. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You can visit our website, brookings.edu, to learn more about Maria Solis and her research and keep an eye out for her upcoming book from the Brookings Press, Dilemmas of a Trading Nation. And now, Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. In presidential campaigns, policy wonks and journalists always scrutinize the candidates' proposals to help voters appreciate the differences between them. And that's how it should be, even in a presidential election as unusual as this year's. But I've been thinking about a different question. Never mind what the candidates are talking about. What should be the top three items on the next president's economic policy to-do list? Here's my list. One, identifying and pursuing policies that might improve the economy's growth rate, both in the near term and especially over the long term. One of the most alarming economic developments in the past year or so has been the disappointing rate of growth and productivity, the amount of stuff we make for every hour of work. Now, we have to be humble about what government policy can do to increase productivity, but it's really important to try. This is a tough question, and we'll tackle it with some experts here at Brookings on September 9th. See the Hutchins Center website for details. Two, a big slice of the economic growth we have enjoyed over the past decade has benefited the best-off Americans. So the next president needs to look for ways not only to get the overall size of the economy bigger, but to boost the incomes of those at the bottom and the middle. Now, today's tax and spending policies do reduce the amount of inequality that we'd have if the market were left to its own devices. But the forces of technology and globalization are widening the gap between winners and losers in our economy, and policy needs to respond more aggressively than it has. Three, climate change. NASA's Goddard Institute said recently that the average temperature around the globe in July 2016 was warmer than in any month since reliable record-keeping began back in 1880. Now, the American political system is terrible at dealing early with long-term problems, but we've got to find a way to make this one an exception. The more we do now to address climate change, the better our odds of avoiding disaster in the future, and we may not be able to adjust so easily if we wait until it's too late. Now, you'll notice that I didn't put the federal deficit and debt on my top three list. Here's why. We don't have a near-term deficit problem. The deficit, the difference between what the government spends and what it takes in, has come down quite a bit from the levels hit during the Great Recession. Interest rates remain very low, even though the economy has recovered and the federal government has run up a huge debt by historic standards. We do have a long-term problem, though. We've promised benefits, particularly to the old, that we can't cover with the revenues the existing tax code will produce. Now, we shouldn't wait too long to address that. But I see a greater urgency for the next president to use his or her first budget to give the economy a boost than to spend a lot of time arguing about how best to cut spending or raise taxes. I suspect that it'll be easier to cut spending and raise taxes if the economy is doing better. And also, some of the responses to climate change, a carbon tax, for instance, could respond both to global warming and help us meet the fiscal challenges that lie ahead.
I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. You can learn more about David Wessel and the Hutchins Center at brookings.edu slash Hutchins Center, and listen to more of his updates on our SoundCloud channel. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Mark Holscher, plus thanks to Vanessa Souter, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.